Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Yeah, just weird. Stuff you wouldn't think would happen in skateboarding. And the fact is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hi, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew F. Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Western Australia. Sovereignty never ceded. Listeners are advised that this podcast includes mention of sexual assault and trauma. In this episode, I interview writer and director Matthew Holmes about his latest film, The Cost. The Cost is a searing vigilante thriller that tells the story of two men, David and Aaron, who abduct the newly released felon Troy to inflict their own version of justice and retribution for the crime that he was imprisoned for. While on paper, The Cost appears to be a routine rape-revenge film, it eschews the genre trappings to become a grounded thriller that explores the potential brutality of masculinity. And in turn, The Cost then pulses with a palpable dread that will leave you shaking by its close. In the following interview, which contains slight spoilers, Matthew talks about the construction of the film, how he framed the tension with cinematographer Cable Williams, and what work the actors did to get into the right mind space of the three characters who are pushed to horrifying places. The cost is receiving a limited run in Australian cinemas from October 5th, before heading to physical media by Madman Films. To find out more details about the screenings and where to buy tickets, as well as the physical copies of the film, visit the links in the show notes, where we, you'll be able to head over to the Cost Facebook page. Additionally, to listen to other interviews that I've done, as well as to read my review of the Cost, head over to thecurb.com.au. New podcast interviews appear each Friday, with bonus interviews, just like this one, appearing on Wednesdays. Now, let's listen to the trailer for the Cost, followed by the interview with Matthew Holmes. So let me ask you guys an honest question. Are you serious campers? Or are you just up here getting away from the missus and the kids? For me, it's a getaway. You married? Hey, baby. Not anymore. Just letting you know I'm on my way home now. She was murdered. Troy Chapman? raped and murdered Stephanie Baker. He was sentenced to 32 years. They let you out in 10. I'm her husband. I'm her brother. I have spent years planning every detail of this. She begged you to stop. And watch your boy. It's not too late. He's still letting go. What makes you think we'd ever let you go? Remember what he did to her. You keep that in front of your mind. This is justice, mate. And we're the only ones who can give it to her. You do this, you will never be the same. I love you. 
He's letting you get inside your head. He's manipulating you. Help! If we go through with this, I won't be able to live with it. We've gone so far. Past the point of no return. Look, it's a really great film. Uh, you've got a lot to be proud of, so congratulations. Let's jump into talking about it then, because uh, I'm impressed by the way that you've kind of pivoted as a filmmaker from doing Legend of Ben Hall off the ground, but then you shifted over to doing The Cost. And I'm curious for you if we can start off talking about what your drive is as a filmmaker, what your interest is as a filmmaker, what kind of stories you're interested in telling on screen. I'd, uh, as a filmmaker, the projects that I write and things that I want to make, I'm not really driven by a specific genre. I know everyone thinks of me as the Bushranger guy. Uh, like if you look at all the scripts that I've written, there's so many in so many different genres. There's horror, family drama, war, Western. There's so many different genres and um, I'm interested in all of them. So it's really just whatever kind of story takes my fancy. I'm really just driven by it's just a feeling that you get like when, with a story that you really want to tell. It really isn't defined by genre or anything. I came to trying to get my other Bushranger projects off the ground. I was hoping that, you know, with, with what we've done with ben, ben Hall, that that would help leverage those projects. And of course I have a big passion for Australian history and especially those stories. But when it came to the cost, that was really driven out of a motivation to just get, to get something happening because since Ben Hall, I've been trying to get all these projects up and some of them got very close and they would always collapse at the last minute. And I felt like I needed to get control of being a filmmaker back into my court because too often we we put the control into someone else's court by waiting for the finance. And until that finance comes, you can't make a movie. So the cost was born out of a desire to actually get back in and, and make something for a very small amount of money. So the story was written with with a but with the idea of keeping it low budget you know keep it three guys out in the woods you know what could we do with that concept yeah and for me it was an idea i had many years ago when i read a newspaper article about a man who well about a person who was getting released from prison after having murdered someone's daughter and i thought oh man i bet the father or the family would probably want to get hold of that guy now that he's out of prison and then i thought oh there's an idea. What what if they did actually do that? What would that look like? And that could be a very contained story. And so really, and I held on to that for a few years. And then when it was time to write the cost, I sort of took that concept and um, and started playing with it. It's so effective. And especially because we've got the dynamics of a brother and then a husband as well, who, you know, they've both got their own, I guess, the for want of a better term, their code of what they actually want to achieve out of this situation, which, of course, is the, the mm. you know, the cost of the title. But I'm curious, you know, alongside the work with Ben Hall, there is this exploration of a code of what it means to be within that. It's a code of what it means to be a bushranger. And here it's a code of what it means to be a partner and somebody trying to avenge something or to try and... Uh, you know, address a wrong that has, needs to be righted outside of the justice system. And I'm curious what it means for you to explore codes on screen. What is a code for you as a filmmaker? Well, I think 
that uh, when it comes to codes, uh, I have a, a very strong sense of right and wrong just personally. I've always had a very strong you know, sense of justice, um, as many of us do. And I think that influences, you know, things that I write. But I'm also very curious about characters who uh, have uh, contradictions in their code and, ha- and how, their, how their code is going to be challenged. Um, obviously, in the cost, you've got two characters with a very strong code, but that code is completely being challenged. And I guess with Ben Hall, <clears throat> that's very much this. This is a Ben Hall was a good man doing a bad thing. You know, I don't think he was a fundamentally evil person, but there was something wrong with him, and he. And so I think that's probably carried over again into the cost with very morally ambiguous grey characters that aren't evil, but they ha- they're they they're good, but they they've still their 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 codes mixed up, <laughs> and uh, it's fun to explore that because you had to see them grappling with their own um, not only the external, but they're also grappling with the internal. So it's just it's very strong dramatically to. To play with and the way i approached it with these two characters is when we were writing the story we decided that david the husband would act completely out of emotion and the uh, and the brother character aaron would operate out of reason and so if you look at all their choices that they make and how they handle every situation in the movie they mostly act from those two polar uh places reason and emotion and reason and emotion so often will conflict with each other in a, in a situation where your emotions are telling you one thing, but your reasons telling you another. And that created the conflict between those two characters who both want the same thing, but they're and both motivated by the same code, but they operate from two modes of thinking, reason and emotion. So, yeah, that's how we explored it in the cost. Let's then shift over to talking about casting, because as you mentioned, you know, they're these two characters are so complex and and really quite uh, powerfully presented by these two lead actors. Can you talk about casting Jordan and Damon? And then, of course, we'll get on to talking about Kevin in a moment. But I'm curious how you went about casting those two characters. Sure. Look, it was not conventional casting. I didn't I didn't write a script and then look for actors. I wrote the script knowing who I wanted. Having worked with Jordan before on The Legend of Ben Hall and knowing how strong an actor he was. I've always wanted to make a film with him in the lead for, for many years, more than 10 years. So this really was, I wrote the character of David for him and with him in mind, didn't tell him. But then when I presented the script to him, I, I, I went straight to him first and said, it's yours if you want it. Uh, and the other actor, again, a friend I've known, not as long as, not as long, but also knowing he was a terrific actor, wrote it with him in my mind and and same thing presented it to him first and said i'd like you to play the part so i guess i was writing to what i knew of those of those actors i knew what their strengths were and i knew how they how they could potentially play these characters so i wrote it for them knowing this also would be a low budget film and i wasn't going to have the ability to take it around and you know send it off to chris hemsworth or something you know what i mean so it really was, again, um, like the rest of the cost, born out of trying to make a film with what I had around me and what I was, what I had available at, at my disposal at the time. With that in mind, like, I'm curious then how important like set design is in a capacity. And of course, you know, there's not much in the way of set design in the sense that 
we're talking about being set out in the forest for quite a lot of it. So that is a natural set design there, but it does so much in creating a mood and a vibe and this feeling of anguish inside you and and tension there. And I'm curious how important that is for creating a low budget film to have something that is so visually striking that amplifies the mood and the emotion of the film. My production designer was uh, a first time production designer and art director but because it was you know, modern day and it was mostly out in the woods I knew it wasn't going to be too big an ask but our what we tried to do was just create everything to be very natural we didn't want anything to be hyper stylized and we didn't want the movie to come across pulpy in any way we wanted it to have this absolute feeling of this could be your neighbors doing this so we wanted nothing in the production style to stand out or jump up and go look at me what i think you're probably feeling that tension that's in this in the film that comes through in in all the areas you know costume you know lighting or whatever it is it is a sense of realism but it was also a sense of being trapped with those characters i think that's probably how we created that sense of 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 tension i don't know if you you've noticed on the first run but if you see it again you'll notice that the camera never leaves the characters and it never leaves their perspective. You never get drone shots looking at their car from above. You never get very distant, very rarely we ever get a distant shot of the characters. That There's never the observer looking in. It's always the cameras are stuck with them, and that creates a sense of claustrophobia, and that was a, a deliberate choice. Again, knowing that we weren't going to be able to get the cranes and the drones and everything, we tried to turn our limitations into a strength. So we kept the car- we kept the car- the, car- uh, the cameras right there with the characters all the time, and so the audience never gets to get out of their perspective and have a break or a- or a cutaway or anything. And I think that's probably what it does. And on top of that, the the way we wrote every single uh, scene, uh, every scene has got tension, and that was very deliberate. Like, what's the tension going on in this scene? Where's the push and pull in every single scene? What's the question that's being asked that the audience has to has to know the answer to that will keep them watching the very, very next scene? All the way while we were shooting the movie, we were constantly saying, this, this is a rubber band that we just want to keep pulling and pulling and pulling until the audience think, when is this thing going to snap? And so all of those intentions were just put into every, every single uh, facet of the production, like I said production design, you know, photo- you know, photography performances. These are all the conversations we had beforehand and this is what we went in with and um, tried to put on screen. Yeah, uh, hearing that really makes me appreciate the opening even more because it is very much a show, not tell. Like we don't, unless you've, you've read the synopsis of the film, you've got no idea what's actually going on and it's a subversion of the good versus bad. And it's not evil, right? Because I don't think that any of the characters here are evil, but it's a good versus bad situation and finding that moral ground in there and getting to see how that plays out in the, the opening 10, 15 minutes and not sure exactly what's happening. I, I just love that, that opening. I think it's really quite, quite a powerful scene setting moment. Can you talk about creating that opening and the, the decision behind juxtaposing these two characters against the guy who was going to effectively be uh, caught and trapped. I learned somewhere that movies are the most interesting when you pose a question that must be answered and people will keep watching. Um, so what we wanted to do is pose the question right out of the gate. Who killed this girl? And then I was going to give you three characters who have no, who you have no concept of what their connection is. 
you don't know whether it, this is the past, you don't know if this is the future, you don't know, there's just no context. All you know, there's, there's someone has been killed and there's these three straight men who have no obvious connection. And we tried to do things in the scenes that would subvert and, and throw people off. It was constantly about throwing red herrings out as a deliberate way to confuse but also entice and create constant questions. Why is that guy getting a gun? Why is that guy buying stuff? Is he the man that did it? Is he about to go kill a girl? Who's this lonely man who's creepy to people on the on the train? What's he, you know? So it, within the first five or ten minutes, what we wanted to do was throw so many questions at the audience. They're loaded with questions, and now they're going, okay, I have to know what the heck is going on. Again, it's very much by design. You know, I think it's quite effective because where the movie gets ahead of the audience and now the audience is playing catch up and figuring out what the heck's going on. And then with every new reveal, okay, these two guys know each other. Okay, now they're capturing this guy. Every new reveal adds another question. And then finally, when they're in the woods and and, and they say to the guy, this is what we've got you for and this is what we're going to do, the new question is, are they going to do it? Can, will they go through with it? And what will happen if they do go through with it? And so it's just a constant set of new questions being asked throughout the movie. I think that's what that's what we talked about. It's the rubber band that just keeps getting get, keeps getting stretched tighter. So let's then shift over to talking about the other casting then, which is, of course, we've got uh, Kevin, who is so quite delivering just a really, really difficult performance. And I'm curious how you got him to the space that he needed to be in to present the character that he does. I think, you know, everybody is really great in the film, but the film really hinges on his performance and making sure that we both empathise, but also in some capacity want to condemn him too. Uh, and you, you're putting us into the shoes of the other two characters to see whether how we feel. So I'm curious how you went about helping him build the character to do that. Again, he was the hardest role to cast, and I didn't have an actor. Actually, I had—I tell you, I had one actor who I had in mind for it, much like the other guys. But when I gave that actor the script, they actually passed on it, and they said it's not because I don't think this is a good script. I want to work with you again, Matt, but I don't want to do this role. He, he said, I don't want to be in this headspace for the you know the six months that you're going to be filming over. And what this character goes through and, and endures, and I just, I just, it's too, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then I approached two more actors, and I got pretty much the same answer. I ended up finding Kevin on a on a on a casting page, and I saw his face initially, and I thought for some reason his face jumped out as me as the mental image I always had of this character. And we had mutual friends. I asked around about him. I heard he was a really good guy. I saw his showreel and I saw some stuff on the showreel that showed me he could probably go to this place very convincingly. And then it was just a process of, of him sitting a, a self-tape. And when he when he showed me one scene of a self-tape, which was one of the torture pleading scenes that he did, you know, in the corner of, of a room, it was so convincing. I We gave him the job straight up. We had conversations about, again, like you said, we want him to be both repellent but sympathetic. As written, we didn't want him to be antagonistic because if he was someone that was mouthing off and being a really awful character who showed no repentance or no, or whether it's real or not, the repentance, we don't really know. But if he wasn't showing that, then the characters would have no struggle to, to, to deal with him. You know, they, they wouldn't have any conscience. It was very deliberate to make him sympathetic. Not because we want people to sympathise with with people that do horrible things, but you know he's ultimately still a, a human being and 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 you know wants to live and doesn't want to die and you know and I think 
normal people have empathy even even with people like like that in a situation like that there would be some empathy so as far as all the characters go about creating it i really gave them free reign to interpret the character the way that they saw best uh, i said to all three of them when we started i said the film lives and dies on your performance not on how well i'm gonna throw the camera around or how crazy my lighting is going to be us this is this is an actor's showpiece and we want to craft these performances to be the best we can be. So, and I gave them a lot of leeway with their interpretation of the character. They would always come to me with wanting to change lines uh, to say them in a way that they think their character would say, or maybe they would even challenge me and say, I don't think my character would say that here, or this is what I think he'd say instead. So it was extremely collaborative between the three of us. Each actor had a different kind of method of, of, of how they worked. Jordan is a very highly trained actor, so he came from a very theatrical approach where it's for, you know, you break the character down and there's a lot of rehearsal and, you know, this sort of thing. Damon's a much more instinctual actor who sort of keeps to himself and works it all out in his mind and then and then comes. Uh, and Kevin was a bit more of a turn-it-on, turn-it-off type of actor who would, he's all just normal and the loveliest guy you'll ever meet. And then when it comes, then it's an action, boom, and he's into it. And then cut, and he's out of it. So really, uh, a lot of it's really just the actors. It was just them bringing what they thought was best, and me just occasionally just coming in and just sort of guiding it along and giving them some 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 clues along the way. So it was very much, a, I guess, if you consider the film a bit of a sculpture, all all four of us were there carving away at it. It wasn't it wasn't just me. Curious then, what the mood is like when you're not shooting? Were they? How did the actors interact with one another? Well, to begin with, Damon and Jordan told Kevin and myself that they would actually prefer to to keep a distance from Kevin, to not get charming with him and social with him and like until the film was finished um, because they wanted to maintain this sense of, of you know, distance and coldness towards him that they felt would help with the performance and so on. And Kevin was completely fine with that. He understood that process. But, of course, Kevin being just, like I said, the loveliest guy, that kind of broke down over the months as we went on, um, especially with Jordan and, and Kevin, which again sort of reflected the movie anyway, because those characters, he, he sort of is the one that shows more sympathy. It was a great crew and we all did had a really good time. It was a lot of hard work, but we all got along really well. But um, you did get that sense, especially on certain days, that we were, we were making something that was a bit icky and it was a bit uncomfortable and there was a bit of a heaviness around a lot of the scenes, especially the torture scene and with Kevin being strung up in the woods and cold and pleading take after take, just doing these, you know, these big long monologues and, and so on. Of It was it was hard at times. You did get that. Yeah. We felt sorry for Kevin mostly. Everyone just felt so sorry for him because it doesn't take, after five takes of someone doing something like that, you start to think that they are suffering. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he he really was put through the ringer, um, Kevin. He he was of all the actors, he was the one that suffered the most physically and probably mentally as well. But said he ne- but he never complained. And that was the amazing thing about Kevin. He never once complained about it. So it's very fortunate. As a filmmaker, how do you keep your cast and crew safe in that capacity? You're dealing with some really intense things, both both in a physical sense but also in a mental sense. So what kind of structures do you put in place to help people on set? process what you're working with look it, i mean obviously we we we, keep, we put in we put in place safety measures you know there's always safety talks and and we always you know scout 
areas and, and check areas that we're filming in to make sure that, you know, there's no pitfalls and there's no rocks. And so there's all that sort of stuff that we were very, very strict and very stringent about. There was always a nurse on set every day. So that we're, we're constantly doing those sort of, you know, sort of standard things that you should always do in a film, keep people safe. But I guess with the mental stuff, it was it was just about giving the actors the, the space they need to, to at any time call cut. And if they need five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, to to recover, to, to do that. And just to listen to them when, when you know, when they'd had enough and that they knew there was, they, they had a safe space to say no or stop or whatever without anyone getting upset, which they absolutely have. And I remember doing one scene with, with Kevin and, and uh, he was doing a very difficult emotional scene pleading. And, and then I think we'd done like four or five takes and he'd just done a take that was brilliant. And the light just got a little bit better. And I, and I said to him, oh, our light is really good. Do you think you got one more in you? And the only t- it was only one time he went, oh, nah, you know what, I don't think I do. And I was like, okay, that's it. We, we had at least two good takes. Sure, the lighting wasn't as great, but the performances were spot on, so that's fine, you know. So um, really that's what it is. We just look, everyone's looking out for each other, and that's sort of how it was a very little a, very, a little family unit. We're always out there in the woods together, and, and, and we all supported each other and had each other's back. Same with the scenes with Nicole Pastor as well. Just a lot of conversation between her and Kevin and myself and always checking in with them as we were doing each each take, making sure no one was getting hurt. And, you know, and when the scene was getting to them as as, as it did at one one point late in the night with with uh, Nicole, it was just to go just to observe it and say, Yep, take take fifteen minutes. She just needs a break from all of this because it's getting to her. So I think it's just about being respectful to the fact that, you know, people are not people are not puppets and they have to, you know, and even though we're all pretending, you know, what, what you're doing can be quite mentally stressful. Let's talk about Nicole as well. I I chatted to her about her work as a as an actor recently and she's really quite a wonderful performer on screen. And yet she's not in the film all that much, but she still feels like a fully formed character. And I'm curious if you can talk about the conversations you had to help build who she is as a person to ensure that we also empathize completely with her as a character and not a person who's endured a terrible thing. The way we dealt with her character in the movie was, was a real yo-yo. Like we had lots of scenes very early in the film of flashbacks of the husband thinking of this girl and, stuff like that that we were going to do, but it didn't feel, it felt heavy handed and we got rid of it very early on. We didn't even shoot that stuff. It was a bit of a dance uh, trying to figure out how to best bring her into the story. At one point she never shows up. You see her only in a photograph, but we felt that I think it was halfway through filming. We, cause it was really supposed to just be a linear story, but then we had the epiphany that, you know what? And we'd already filmed some torture scenes and we were about 60% of the film was shot. And then we thought, Watching this guy getting beaten up and everything doesn't really, uh, it's, it's good, but we don't, we get to feel too sorry for him because we don't understand his crime the way these two other characters understand his crime. So what we thought we had to do is we had to find a way to go back to the past in a way that made sense. And so we found the point in the movie where we could introduce this idea of the phone call because Someone once told me that after a, a pair, their parent had died, they kept ringing up the phone number of the parent that had passed away recently so they could listen to their voice on the voicemail. And I thought, oh, that's, that's not a very healthy thing to do because it keeps the sadness alive. And I thought, oh, 
what if this is what keeps David's pain alive? He constantly listens to the very last message that she left him, thought that was the way into the past by him putting on that, listening to that message, and then whoop, it takes us back to the past. We get to see the crime, and now we understand why these two characters are so adamant about doing what they're doing. It kind of recalibrates the audience as much as it recalibrated the character, and as and so he can get back on with focusing with doing what he has to do. Again, it was about making the audiences, I guess, participate in this movie much like the characters are. And that came in halfway through. And that's when we really decided, right, we need a really strong, we don't just need someone in a flashback to, to look pretty and smile at the camera. We need, a, we need an actor who for, uh, for this three or four minute scene can really bring this character to life. And I've been wanting to work with Nicole for a while. I was being really impressed with the, she would always just send me showreels to ask for advice. And of course, watching her showreels over the years, I, got, I was like, wow, this, this girl can really act. So I immediately asked her if she wanted the role and, and she did. And yeah, we had to kind of make her feel as, as well-formed as we could in that small amount of time. I think what also helps with her character feeling more well-formed, even though we only, she's only on screen for a brief amount of time, is that you understand the relationship that these men had with her and you understand the great love they had for her. And I think that, again, is psychologically building up the character in, their, in the audience's mind, even though she's not sort of visibly present. She sort of hangs over the movie much in the way that sort of Laura Palmer hanged over the over the Twin Peaks series, even though she was dead in that in that series. Because she's sort of the motivation and the linchpin between all three characters. And you learn about her strengths as a character through how they all talk about her. And I, and I think Nicole, in, in a very short amount of time, just captured the, the I guess, the sweetness and the vulnerability of of that character and, of course, adds to the outrage of the audience that she has suffered such a, an awful fate. And there really wasn't any other scenes written other than that one that got cut or anything. That was the only one we we had we only did with her. So I, I'm curious as well, like the the subject matter and the suggestion of all the violence and the, the you know, the torture that goes on can lead towards an audience understanding or thinking that this might be leaning into the exploitation genre. But in watching it, it's clear to me, at least, that it doesn't. It's more of a, a thriller than an exploitation film. And I'm curious if you can talk about striking a balance and making sure that the violence is felt, but it's not something we ever enjoy or appreciate or go, yes, you know, suffer or anything like that. How do you basically strike that balance of, of violence for violence? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. And I totally understand. I I don't like violence for violence sake and i do not like exploitation movies i have a very small horror section because i'm not a big horror fan and i certainly don't like what we call torture porn movies so doing this was definitely going into an area i've never gone into before as a filmmaker but i also knew i did not want to make an exploitation film because i don't enjoy them um so i had to make it the kind of movie i would enjoy um, as well it was a fine line to walk, but there were a few rules we gave ourselves that I think take it out of exploitation and, and make it drama. Number one, the motivation for doing it and the character that it's being done to, well, he's not an innocent character. A lot of exploitation films usually take, you know, the kids that wander into the woods or characters who really don't deserve this, and then they put them through. the. And so the whole time you're watching it, you're going, oh, my God, they don't deserve this. So this film gives you, oh, that do they, do they maybe deserve this? 
Secondly, we didn't want to make a, a gory film, which also works for the characters. They don't want to leave a trail of gore wherever they go because they want to hide their crime. So we made the decision that they're really not going to do anything that creates gore and blood. That's not what they're doing. They have this code of whatever you did to her, we're going to do to you kind of thing. Uh, and of course, if they do anything that, you know, they start cutting off, uh, you know, limbs and fingers and, and, and he could just bleed out and die before they wanted him to. So we took the gore factor out. And I think also you see from the very beginning of the torture scene in the middle of the movie, you see the psychological breakdown of the characters as they start doing it. There's no pleasure being derived from the characters in doing it. There's an initial, I guess, high that they're doing it, that they want to be doing it, but it degrades. And you and as and again, audience being in step with the characters in the movie, you see them going, Oh, I don't like this, I don't like this, I want it to stop, and they and and that's when David you know, stops doing it and has to sort of psych himself up to keep going. So the movie's telling the audience, this violence is not here for you to get excited by, to be in, entertained by or to find any kind of pleasure in. It's telling you these things subliminally, and I think that's why people who normally wouldn't enjoy torture films can get on board with the cost, because it's clearly not for entertainment. It's clearly saying there's something wrong with with what you're watching, and these characters shouldn't be doing it. And I think all those subconscious sort of signals that the movie is sending, I think audience pick them up. Maybe that's why it doesn't feel like exploitation. It's more about, the film to me is more about mental anguish mental pain that these characters are enduring and then of course putting themselves into more anguish as they decide you know deciding whether or not they should go through with it and what the the consequences and the cost will be if they do more so than than physical things i want to talk about uh working with cable with the cinematography uh which is quite powerful impressive stuff creating the tone and the style of the film cable and i uh we spoke a lot about the kind of uh movies that i guess we've often seen with these types of movies and we thought how can we do it differently but also because we knew we weren't going to be able to shoot this in a in a, in a traditional way um because we just didn't have the budget for it and we shot this for like eighty thousand dollars and everyone was volunteer it's really just our cost being covered and, and, you know, and we didn't have a big crew. So we knew that he would be doing all of his own focus pulling. And so would all the camera assistants be doing their own focus pulling. So we had to devise a, a, a way, uh, I guess, a, a, a language of the movie. And one of the things that I thought would be the best to put the audience into the character's mindset is simply just to put the camera in sync with the characters as much as um, the script tries to put the audience in sync with the characters. And that was, we just had a rule when the camera, when the characters stayed put, the, ca- the camera stayed put. When the um, actors were moving, the camera moved with them. And rarely does it ever break that rule. So you never got, you know, sort of shots spinning around the characters or, you know, fancy, fancy um, moves and, and pushes in, which I guess are very, you know, Hollywood and create a sense of artificiality like you're watching a movie when you see that because the camera's doing something to create a sense of drama. We didn't really want to do that. We'd sort of lock the camera with the actor and it sort of helped for focus because wherever they went, the camera sort of went with them and kept them in focus without need too much pulling required. But it also, again, just trapped the audience with the characters. 
and I think that's that's that creates the, the the sense of claustrophobia that the characters have. Sorry, the audience has a sense of claustrophobia. They can't get away from these three characters, and everything's their point of view from their point of view. So that that helped us in in two ways: budget and and storytelling. We also wanted to give it a very fluid feeling um, as well. So it was decided no tripods on set. They also take out too much time to pack up and set down, and they tend to make a film feel a little bit static. You know, it was handheld and and Ronan's, and so it gave it, it gave it quite a fluid flowing thing where you're constantly moving around and travelling with these characters. Uh, and then again, it was just keep it natural and let's not be afraid of dark spaces. Let's not be afraid of not being able to see everything. Let's just keep it real. So again, it's just about embracing all your limitations rather than trying to convince the audience that we were, a, you know, a $20 million movie when we were anything but. And it just, again, fed into that feeling of naturalism. When it came to grading the film, Cable and I initially were going to have a much more gritty, dark sort of look to it. But just before we did the grade, I, for some reason, I just, I was like, you know what, most, I think I was watching a few Netflix movies and every dramatic movie was, you know, drained out colour and gritty and over-desaturated. And I just thought, what if we went in the opposite direction? What if we actually went natural, the way movies in the 90s looked, much more natural colours. Again, to create that sense of no artificiality here, it's just this is real life. We're not tempering too much with the image to create a, a sense, an artificial sense of, oh, this is gloomy. Um, we actually punched the colours up and went the opposite way. And Cable was initially a bit like, oh, that's not how we were thinking of grading it. But when he saw the film finalized he was like oh no that really worked to keep to actually punch the colors up and go in the opposite way yeah that's that was that was sort of the conversations with with cinematography with that in mind let's jump way back to the beginning then and the conversations that you had with gregory about the script what's your working process like as a co-writer i'm really fortunate with greg we're like two star-crossed lovers that found each other in across space and time as writers go I uh, never really wanted to be a writer. I always wanted someone else to write my scripts because it's not really what I was into. I'm more of a visual person. So I had to teach myself to become a script writer, but it, it's a hard discipline and it's a, uh, you know, I've got ideas for stories, but script writing, that's a hard thing to do. But along comes Greg. He just wants to be a writer. He doesn't want to be a director or anything like that. He comes from an editing background, but he really wants to be a writer. And we just got along on a really great personal level. When we started writing a horror together, we found that we uh, we would just talk about the the scenes and we'd talk about the the movie a long time before we start writing and it, it's just idea dartboard with him and I and we would constantly be throwing ideas and bouncing off each other and then we always loved each other's ideas so when someone would have a oh I got a what if we would always love it and then we would, the other person would then add to it and so it's a constant process of of just I guess I guess pure creativity and imagine like just bouncing off each other and then it would just be a process of once we got the story right down and we knew everything about the story then we go off to and write and we just go right you take scene 12 i'll take scene 14 and then we just throw show each other's work when we're done and we'll just write over the top of each other's work change that line fix that up shorten that add a bit more and nothing we ever really write on each other's work, it doesn't offend the other. We just feel like it improves each other's work. 
And so we never have a crossword. We never debate. We never fight. Everything is always in service of what's the best story and how can this be the best script. And, you know, and if we do have something we disagree on, we just talk about it until we've finally figured out what's the best thing for the film. Often I'd, he would, he would say, he would maybe change a line and I would say, oh, why did you, why did you change it? I thought it was good that way. And then he would explain why he did it. And I'm like, okay, good. I'm convinced that it's been a great writing process and we've written now four screenplays together and we're doing our fifth. So it really is like two halves of the one brain just working together, the left and the right. It's just a flow with us. And even though he's in Adelaide and I'm in Melbourne and we do everything over Facebook calls, uh, it works really, really well. So yeah, I'm very fortunate to have a writing partner like that. <laughs> How important exploring the Australian identity is for you as a filmmaker on screen? Of course, Ben Hall is, you know, as as important as a, a historical aspect of, you know, Australian identity as as anything else. You know, when people think of Australia, they do think of bushrangers. But I'm curious with the cost how much Australian identity played into that? I would say that it didn't play a, any part at all. It didn't play any part at all when, when it came to thinking about this story. We thought of this story as universal. It just happened to be set in Melbourne, Australia, because that's where we filmed it. This is a story that you could transpose into any culture and any time anywhere in the world because these are humans feeling anger and rage and revenge and all this for something that happens across cultures. So it really is to me, you know, someone could remake this film in Russia or Africa or in the deep South in America, and it would be the same movie. There'd be nothing different about it. You're simply going to change the characters and the location. So there was no sense of Australian identity that I was trying to put into it. The only thing is, is there is the character of Brian who rocks up and he's very Australian, I guess. But that really is just a comment on the types of people you will find out in the country because, and the types of people that I've made a lot of movies set in the country. And so I meet a lot of, you know, regional Australians and they have this kind of manner about them. And that's why Brian was written that way. Not because I was trying to add to the cultural identity or anything. So in that sense, I don't feel that the cost is an Australian film it's just a film made in Australia. If that, if there's any, if you if you, if you under, know what I mean by that that difference, I don't. I never have a agenda in my mind when I'm making a movie about how is this pushing Australian identity or how is this adding to that or whatever. I'm simply just interested in in, in, in stories that take my interest, um, and if it comes with an Australian flavour, because I, I have a great love for the Australian bush and the Australian landscape, which all, all my films so far have uh, are filled with. They're just the things I personally just happen to love about Australia is more the, the, the environment and some of the interesting people. I just hope it sort of, it, it just adds a nice flavour to what I would, I'm trying to make international movies or movies that have no boundary really, but they just happen to be set in Australia. Yeah, I, I can't think of a time where I've ever really wanted to go, right, this is, this is pushing some sort of Australian culture identity or you know, something like Crocodile Dundee or you know, something like that. It's just really not part of my framework as a, as a writer or a filmmaker. So part of the reason I ask it is that it's so like when we, when we, and I talk about we as in like critics and, and the people who you know make decisions about what gets put on screen, the conversation is always focused around what does it do for the, you know, cultural identity? What does it say about Australian culture? And it's like, as you say, not, 
all films need to be Australian films, they can just be an Australian film. Like it's a it's a film made in Australia and it just happens to be a film made in Australia. That's it. And I find it so fascinating that it is it is often a a bellwether of deciding what gets made or deciding what is important because of how Australian it is. And I've just been fascinated in hearing what the the responses have been because for some people it's everything. That's why they make a film. And for others, it's like that is the furthest about what they want to do. In fact, it, you know, for some filmmakers, it's a calling card. They want to be able to go and make stuff in America and it just happens that we can do that here and things like that. So it's it's great to hear the variety of responses because there's no right or wrong answer, but it's just fascinating to get a litmus test of what's going on in Australia with Australian filmmakers. Yeah, I can see how many people would have very different attitudes to it. Yeah, it really depends on what 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 it is you as a filmmaker are trying to do and say, and why you what motivates you to make a movie, and and I guess maybe where your funding is coming from and what boxes you have to tick. But again, I don't I don't really make movies for any for any other reason than this story inspires me or. Like I didn't try to make, like for Ben Hall, for example, that wasn't, I didn't try to make an Australian bushranger film. It just was a film about an Australian bushranger. I wanted just to make the kind of movie that I thought would like be an international film. So I didn't try to load it. Sometimes I personally feel that Australian films come a little bit front, not all, but some come front loaded with this sense of Australiana and it can be really cringy sometimes because it feels forced yeah so I I don't try to do anything like that I I don't I don't suppose I don't think anything I do as a filmmaker personally I don't try to load it with really any agenda there's no cultural or social agenda I'm trying to put in anything I do I what I'm more interested in is interesting questions about people so with every character film I make, it's just interesting questions about people, what are people like? And with the cost, that's absolutely all I wanted to do was make it about people and, 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 the, and the questions we all have and the feelings that we have and, you know, is this right, is this wrong? I think that's what I respect the most about the cost is that it doesn't have an agenda. It doesn't have their I, – I can't see – what your point of view is distinctly in the film, because you're giving the space for these characters to show their own point of view. And I know for some people that might say, well, then we're getting an understanding of your point of view, but you're allowing the characters to explore this question in a really, really fascinating capacity. Yeah, because it, it's not something that has an easy answer to it. I, Cause I don't have it. I don't have the answer. So I'm not going to pretend like I do or, or have the, I guess the hubris to 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 say that I do. I don't know um, if it was right or wrong what these did these characters did, but I, what I do know is that the consequences of what they did, all three characters, has consequence. And so all I want to do is explore consequence and choice. And 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 right from the very beginning, when Greg and I started writing this we said to each other we're, we're going to make a movie that after you watch it you discuss it with your friends over coffee it, it has to be a conversation maker that just pops what would you do what would i don't know if i agree with it and so we had to present all three characters with perspectives that all the audience could understand even the quote-unquote bad guy the raping murdering character even he had to have a perspective that audiences we're considering is he sorry is he really sorry is he you know does he really deserve all of this 
So um, that's very, very deliberate. And we thought, let's not give the answer. Let's let the audience figure that out. Let's just talk about consequence. I guess, you know, the one thing that the movie does say, I think, the only thing it says is that when you when you do something wrong, when you cross a line, it's, it's like a pebble going in the water. Once you start it, the ripple just keeps going. And that's sort of true of each character. Every decision they make, they've already crossed the line and every decision they make is just going to, you know, the, the one universal truth that I, I think that I am trying to say with the cost, and it's pretty broad, is just that when you cross those moral boundaries, the innocent suffer. Uh, it's always the innocent that suffer the most. And that's something I've observed in my own life. And I think that's probably all I was trying to say. When you cross the line, the innocent suffer, uh, which was true of the Troy character where he crossed that moral line and the innocent suffered, which, which was the Nicole character. And these two boys, even with good intentions, with a sense of nobility, they crossed a line and the innocent suffers in the character of Brian. And so uh, I think that's, um, you know, I think that's something that, you know, everyone can consider when I, when, if, you know, if they're thinking of crossing a line. They don't know how, they don't know where, but somewhere along the line, the innocent will suffer for crossing this this line. A really powerful film. There's a lot to be proud of. I'm excited to see what the audience reaction will be uh, when it launches and gets out into having those uh, cinema screenings and then heading onto disc. As am I. We've had some great responses so far. We had three screenings and, and lots of feedback from people afterwards and, it's it's been probably the most rewarding film to 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 show an audience because of the responses we get afterwards because uh, all the time we're getting the responses back that we hoped like when greg and i watch it with audiences like when we go to watch the movie with audiences we don't watch the movie we watch the audience because we're learning as a filmmaker what what did we do that worked and what didn't work. And we sit there and watch faces knowing what's coming and in various scenes and we look for responses. And, and most of the time everyone's responding exactly as we planned. It's, you know, making a film, there's, a, there's an absolute design to it and everything's a payoff or a, you know, a punchline and, a, and these are all planned and you hope they land. And when you see them land, it's, it's oh, thank goodness, all that hard work and talking about it, we finally did it. And, uh, yeah, getting the, getting responses from people who come up, come up afterwards and just blurt out their opinion on, on the story and the characters. And after that, Greg and I, we always just look at each other and go, yep, got them, that's it, that's exactly what we wanted. Them. We wanted you to go away and talk about it just like that. So it's been very rewarding that way, and um, I really can't wait to talk to more people after the screenings coming up. That was filmmaker Matthew Holmes talking about his film, The Cost. And here is Matthew once more, just quickly giving an outline of where you can view The Cost from October 5th. It's releasing, getting released by Madman. It's going, it says a number of platforms, non-subscription platforms and DVD, Blu-ray, on October 18th and from October 5th in the lead up to that, I have arranged a bunch of screenings in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne, uh, which are all Q&A screenings of the film. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details. 
something grand is coming to Nemecolon. Opening fall 2023, the Grand Lodge will surprise and delight with 56 stunning suites and five-star butler services. Indulge in libations at the Circle Bar and the Study before you savor the new and enchanting Fawn and Fable restaurant, where the best parts of a traditional steakhouse and a fairy tale castle create a magical dining experience. With fine dining, a spa, and over 100 adventure, golf, art, and wildlife experiences, whatever your imagination holds, Nemecolon has the key. Visit Nemecolon.com for more information.